Please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Our text today is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 42, and chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, which can be found if you're using a pew Bible on page 54. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat in his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the Lord took their dough before, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor inside of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you, out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten, Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month, 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there should be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And when it, er, and it shall be a sign, uh, and it shall be to you as a sign of, on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we look into your word, to this incredible story of your power and miraculous salvation in days past, Lord, we recognize that uh, you are the same God today, yesterday, and forever. You are a God of great salvation and a God who calls on us to remember that. And so would you fill our hearts this morning with your word and make yourself known to us in a powerful way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that it is virtually impossible for humans to mark a special occasion without eating food? I mean, just think about that for a minute. Your birthday parties, you got to have your cake. You know, the wedding ceremony culminates in the big reception. Uh, anniversaries, what do you do? How do you mark it? You eat food together. You go out for dinner. Holidays usually revolve around some sort of special family meal. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. Right now, many of our fridges and pantries are stocked in anticipation for the Super Bowl tonight. We're going to eat food. That's what we do when we mark a significant occasion. We use food, a special meal that does more than just feed us. It brings us together and gets us involved and very often tells a story, reflects a tradition. Some of us eat things on Christmas Eve that we would never order at a restaurant or otherwise ever wish to actually eat, but you do it because it's tradition. It, it, it you know, maybe it's uh, reflects your ethnic heritage or maybe it's just what you always had every Christmas Eve growing up, and, and so we. We do it. We eat it not be, uh, we eat it uh, not just because we're hungry, but because we know that the meal isn't just about the food, it's about the occasion that we're marking. It's about the significance of the event that we're celebrating. A celebration that simply would not be the same without that specific meal that helps tell the story whether it's the story of our family, the story of Christmas, the story of Thanksgiving, or, in this case this morning, the story of God's salvation of Israel from Egypt. It shouldn't shock us that when God wants to mark a special occasion in the life of his people and help them remember something important, that he gives them a meal to eat regularly, the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've been working our way through the story of Exodus, uh, the second book in your Bibles. And, and so far we've seen this is not just a story of how a small family of refugees becomes this mighty nation and, and God's special covenant people. This is the story that shows us 
what it means that God is Savior. Israel has known God as Creator. They've known Him as their covenant Lord. This is the story that they come to know what it means that their God is Savior. He is saving them from slavery in Egypt. And the climax of the story is what uh, Travis just read for us a few minutes ago. Uh, The event for which the book is named, the Exodus. Exodus means the road out. They are finally leaving Egypt here in chapter 12. God fulfills his promise to come down and rescue his people out of bondage, out of slavery, and to bring them into the land that he uh, swore to give to their ancestors. This is, in the story, the moment we've all been waiting for. Verse 41, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord, all the armies of the Lord, went out from the land of Egypt. This is the climax. But what's stunning about this passage is how little space is actually given to describing the events of the 10th plague and the Exodus in comparison to all of the instructions that Israel receives for how to remember this event. You know, it's, it's kind of like watching Return of the Jedi, and, and right as Luke's about to battle Darth Vader, the camera swings over to a narrator who then tells you what's about to happen and how the Republic ought to celebrate that for years to come. And then you come back to the film and you see the action. And as soon as it's done, you come back to the narrator who tells you again what just happened and a little bit more information on how you ought to then commemorate that on and on and on. It just feels like bad storytelling. You know, you, you, you've come through this action-packed sequence of all of the plagues and, and here's the climax and it just gets bogged down in all of these detailed instructions. But the pileup of the instructions tells us something. It tells us something. Not only that something unique and climactic is happening here. This, is, this, this plague is different from the first nine. This is the one through which Israel will finally leave Egypt. But it, it tells us also that what's happening is not only significant for the generation who is now leaving Egypt. It is significant for every generation of Israel. What happens in this moment will define God's relationship with Israel for all generations. And so he gives them these ceremonies so that they will never forget the significance of this day. Because it matters not just for those going out of Egypt, it's the defining mark of God's relationship with his covenant people for all time. And so he gives them a meal. Three rituals uh, are, are described and instituted in this passage. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Consecration of the Firstborn. Uh, rituals that, are to, uh, that are, are to be observed by all future generations. He says that eight different times in these verses, in this section. That this is to be, uh, well, as he puts it in, in 12.14, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Again, in 13.10, you shall, keep, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. 
And then six other times he says something like that. This is to be an ongoing celebration, these rituals. And they have one major purpose, to help Israel remember, to help them remember. 1214, this day shall be for you a memorial day, something to help you remember. Or 13.3, remember this day. Or 13.9, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. So you've got these feasts to be recognized for all generations. The purpose of them is so they can remember. Well, what are they supposed to remember? He says that over and over again as well. 12.17, for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. That's what you're supposed to remember. Or in uh, 12.27, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Remember that. Or 13.3 again, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out. In fact, he says that one four different times. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out. God has worked his salvation for Israel, and he wants them to remember his saving work. What we saw last week, that they were saved from God, by God, and for God. Through the blood of the Passover lamb. They were saved not just from slavery to Egypt, but from God's own wrath against sin as he poured out his judgment on that night, taking the life of the firstborn, and yet spared Israel through the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb died in place of the son. And so they're saved from God's wrath against sin, but they're also saved by God. He's the one who provided the lamb He's the one who provided the means of salvation that would rescue them from his judgment. And they're saved for God. They're saved in order to serve him as his children, his special covenant people. As as Moses was to say to Pharaoh, let my God says, let my son go that he may serve me. And when Pharaoh finally relents, he says, go serve God. The Lord. And that word serve, exact same word used to describe their slavery earlier in the book. You're no longer my slaves. Your job is now to serve the Lord. Pharaoh consents to that. God is saving his people. And, and it's this last point that they are saved in order to serve that, as we're going to see, makes remembering their salvation so important. They're saved for a reason. They were rescued in order to be God's special people. It shall be to you as a sign and a memorial that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Remembering that God as Savior is necessary to serving God as King. Remembering that God as Savior is necessary for serving God as King. And so he wants them to remember, to never forget this great defining moment of salvation for them. And so he gives them a meal. And again, there are actually three rituals in this passage. Two of them are annual meals, annual celebrations that go together. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the the Passover was to be uh, celebrated on the evening of the 14th day of the first month every year from now until eternity. Uh, And the 
Feast of Unleavened Bread then starts right after that for the next seven days, the 15th day through the 21st. So it's an annual celebration. The consecration of the firstborn was a little bit different. It wasn't an annual recognition, but rather something that happened every time there was a firstborn child born or firstborn of your flock. You were to dedicate that and devote it to the Lord or redeem it uh, instead of giving it to the Lord to to pay a substitution price because all of the firstborns belong to God. He rescued them. They are his. And so these three rituals all work together for the common purpose of taking Israel back to that day, back to that saving event, reminding them who God is and what he did so that they will never forget his salvation. That's the purpose. They eat these meals not because they're hungry, but to remember. And so how do these uh, feasts and celebrations, how do they help Israel do that? How, you know... Uh, we can easily go through the motions on Thanksgiving Day and not really think at all about what we're celebrating. So so how is this meal designed to help Israel remember? Well, first, each of these rituals reminds Israel of their salvation by reenacting God's saving event. So for the Passover meal, each year they would select a spotless lamb, just like Israel had to do that first time, that would be sacrificed roasted and eaten. You know, it was different. It, it, they didn't do the blood on the doorpost. It's not like they had to be saved from Egypt again. Uh, it was a memorial of that first salvation, which defines them. And, and uh, so they would have this meal together, and each element of the meal had significance. The bitter herbs that they were supposed to eat reminded them of their sorrow, the sorrow of misery in Egypt. The unleavened bread that they ate with the lamb reminded them of the haste in which they went out from Egypt, eating it with their sandals on and their staff in their hand because they don't have time for, you know, waiting for bread to rise. The feast God's people shared was something that they could see, taste, touch, and smell. Eating this meal told a story. Uh, And and so it reenacted God's great saving event, similar to the consecration of the firstborn. Uh, Since the firstborn uh, were spared in the Passover, God lays claim to them. They belong to him. And for that reason, the firstborn of the clean animals were to be sacrificed to God. And the firstborn of either people or unclean livestock were to be redeemed through a substitute, either a sacrifice or a money offering uh, in place of that firstborn's life. And it's it's this reminder, why are we doing this thing? Why, when you have a firstborn, do you have to go to the temple and pay this? Well, let me tell you a story of when God redeemed the firstborn and, and protected them from his judgment in order to make them his own. It's this regular reminder, reenacting the story so that Israel never forgets. Uh, the second way, that these celebrations remind Israel of God's saving work is that they mark Israel as God's redeemed people. So they reenact the story. They also mark Israel as God's redeemed people. The Passover is a family meal for the family of God. In 1243 to 49, uh, he, we read how only those who are circumcised, who bear the mark of God's covenant people, 
are allowed to participate. Anyone else who eats of it will be cut off in judgment. It's not for you. And so the uniqueness of the celebration, why is it so exclusive? Why is it just for Israel? Well, the uniqueness of the celebration says something to Israel, that they have experienced a unique salvation. Something one of a kind has happened to this people. And through that salvation, by God's grace, they enjoy a unique relationship with God. They have become his special covenant people. And so eating this meal as a covenant family reminds them that they belong to God, that they have been saved by God. There's something special about who they are. Third, in reminding Israel of that identity as God's special people, these rituals were also a way of what's called consecrating themselves to God. It's a big word, but essentially it means setting themselves apart for God's service. Uh, We all have special dinner plates or things in our house that we never use, right? So so you've got these plates, you've got your daily plates and you have the plates you never use unless it's like a special holiday or something. Then you get them out. Those are consecrated for those special events. In the same way, Israel was to be consecrated to God, set apart not just for any purpose, but for his purposes. And uh, that was part of the significance of these meals and these rituals. The firstborn were consecrated to God. They were set apart for him. Or the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. You know, why in the world for seven days does Israel have to eat bread that's flat like a cracker? And they don't can't use any yeast or leaven to, to let it rise. One, it's a reminder of, of the haste in which they left. But second, it's a picture of purification and repentance. Elsewhere in Scripture, yeast or leaven is a common metaphor for sin. And you think about it, it's a, it's a pretty appropriate picture. You put just a tiny little bit of yeast in a loaf, and that yeast will permeate the entire loaf and make it rise. And so the picture of just a little bit of sin in our lives, if we leave it unchecked, it will permeate the whole thing and spoil the whole thing. And so, uh, especially in the New Testament, you see this picture of getting rid of of the leaven of sin, the yeast of sin. And so in cleansing your home of leaven for a week, it's a picture of rooting out sin in the life of God's covenant people. Uh, going on a, on a, on a search to, to get rid. I mean, think of if you had to do that today. Like every crumb in the bottom of your toaster. Every crumb that's fallen between the cracks in your couch. Every sign or presence of leaven or regular bread in your house. Get rid of all of it. And the work that that takes, it's the picture of how judicious we must be in rooting out sin in our lives. It's, it's a picture of, of being consecrated, set apart for God. Fourth, repeating these rituals regularly creates a mechanism for passing the faith on to the next generation. So when you read through this, this section, you notice that all three rituals here, there is an intentional purpose of explaining the significance of the celebration to children. All three of them, uh, 12, 26, and 27. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What's with all of this special thing and why do I have to eat that? And, and so on and so forth. 
you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. 13.8, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when we came out of Egypt. The consecration of the firstborn in 13, 14, and 15. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what do you mean by this? What does this mean? Why, why are we you know, going up to the temple? Or, or, or why do we do that? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first to open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it's this chance to tell the story, this kind of not-so-everyday ritual or meal that you go through, and it's like there's something unique about it it gets the kids curious. They ask questions, and you get to tell the story so that all generations will come to know the Lord. This is the major reason why we have begun more often than not to celebrate the Lord's table before our children go downstairs. Because otherwise, if we only ever do it after the kindergartners through fifth graders go downstairs, they'll never see it happen, and they'll never ask the question of, why are we doing this? Can I... You know, can I have a snack? Is this snack time? And, you know, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's the Lord's table. And we get to explain that to them and tell the story of the cross. And so there's this uh, function of passing the faith on to the next generation. And then finally, in remembering God's saving work through these meals, there was also an occasion simply to celebrate. These were feasts. They were parties. They were parties. Expressions of joy and delight in having been saved from sin and rescued from slavery and brought into communion with God. I mean, if you think about our everyday life, we throw parties for everything. It does not take us much of an excuse to break out the food and celebrate something. You know, uh, reaching a, a sales goal at work or or birthdays, or different holidays, or football games. We can party for all sorts of reasons. What better thing to party over than the salvation that we've received in Christ, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we have been freed, our guilt is canceled. We belong to Christ. That's worth partying over. And that's one of the functions of these feasts. Because if we are honest... It's really easy to forget what God has done. I mean, the main purpose of all this is to remember God's salvation. And it is so easy to forget. As fallen people, we are prone to forget God. One church historian uh, has described the Christian life as, quote, a combination of amnesia and deja vu. I know I've forgotten this before. I know I've forgotten this before. Uh, Phil Riken explains that as we follow Christ, we keep needing to learn the same lessons over and over because we keep forgetting them. And each time it happens, we suddenly remember that we've had to relearn this before. 
And so we need to remember, when, when I'm mindful of all that God has done for me, when I'm thinking about that, especially all that he's done to save me from my sin, to for, forgive me and make me his own, even though I deserve the exact opposite of that. When I remember that and I'm mindful of his grace and salvation, it is not hard to obey God. It's just not. Uh, you know, I want to honor God because I love him and because I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude and joy for how he's loved me even though I didn't deserve it. That's amazing. I want to honor God when I'm mindful of his salvation, of his saving work in my life. It's as if I've been serving out a life sentence in prison for something I absolutely did, only to receive word one day that the governor has granted me a full pardon. Not not just to be released from prison, but but that my record has been wiped clean. I no longer have, that charge no longer stands against me. The guilt and the shame are wiped away. I am free to be a citizen again. And, and more than that, it's as if the governor has not only pardoned me, but then hired me to work for his administration. He's not just given me my freedom. He's given me dignity and a purpose. Do you think it will be hard to get up and go to work when you remember that every day? Do you think it will be hard to, to drift, uh, how, how to stay focused instead of drift off into other things that you're supposed to be doing, not supposed to be doing? When, when you are mindful of all that you've been saved from and what you've been saved for, obedience is a whole lot easier. And so remembering that God is our Savior is what enables us to serve him as king. Um, It's only when I forget what God's done for me. That's when I'm tempted to think either that I don't need him, you know, I can do this all by myself, or tempted to go my own way, to, to... live in a way that doesn't honor him, to ignore his word or or dismiss his ways, to take pride in my accomplishments. Yeah, look what I did, you know, to to get me here. Even to look for significance or or security or identity in something other than God, some false God. The only way I can do that is if I forget God who God is and what he's done for me. If I'm mindful of that, that will stop me dead in my tracks when I'm tempted to walk down those roads. That's what Moses later warns Israel against when it comes to the the temptation to forget God. He says in Deuteronomy 8, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. 
He warns them. He gives them a meal to remember because it's necessary for serving him. He warns them against forgetting because if they do, it's not going to end well. And sadly, that is often what happened in Israel's experience as you keep reading the story throughout the Old Testament. In fact, as we're going to see in a few weeks, they're barely out of Egypt before they start grumbling against God and forgetting the fact that they just got saved from, from Pharaoh. Um, they forget his incredible salvation. Shortly after they enter the promised land, they forget again the Lord and his salvation. The book of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it is one of the darkest moments in ancient Israel's history. It is ugly. It's the kind of stuff you almost have to edit when you're reading to your little kids. You know, yeah, I'm, I won't give you examples right now, but it is brutal, dark. It is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and which is the same thing as doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in Judges 2, verse 10, he summarizes the main problem that causes all of that chaos. He says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They forgot the exodus. They forgot God's salvation and what he had done, what he saved them for. And it was ugly. And, and this is much of the story throughout Israel's troubled history. We see occasional glimpses where it's looking better. Uh, but much of the story of kings and priests and people turning away from God, neglecting his covenant, serving false gods because they forgot the salvation of the Lord. In fact, as, a, as the story goes on uh, and things get worse and worse, it gets so bad that in his judgment, he actually reverses the exodus. Israel gets to the point where they've strayed so far from their covenant with God that they bring the absolute worst curse down upon themselves, exile from the land. The exodus is undone. The people are taken out of the land, disciplined. But that doesn't mean God is done with them. As you get to that part of the story, you begin to hear the voice of the prophets talking about a new day, a new exodus, when God will bring his people back to the land and not only bring them back to the land, but deal once and for all with the sin that caused them to be kicked out of the land. Jeremiah 23 describes it like this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, David being Israel's uh, pattern king, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God is going to bring a new king and that king will bring salvation. But then listen to how he describes the day when that king comes. Verse seven. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, 
as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So up to this point, God was known by the saving work of Egypt. He was the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. But there's coming a day when people will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us up from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. There's a new exodus coming. Again, one that will not just deal with the geography problem, but with the sin problem. And this act of salvation will be so definitive that that it will impact not just that generation of Israel, but all generations of all God's people because of what he will accomplish through the son of David who is coming. And when you get to the New Testament, it doesn't shock us to see Jesus' identity and work described in all of the language of this new exodus. He is the answer to Jeremiah's promise. We looked at that last week, how, how Jesus takes up the pattern and function of the Passover lamb and fulfills it by dying in our place as our substitute. Just as the lamb died in place of the firstborn, Jesus dies in our place to deal with our sins. What God did preliminarily for Israel in rescuing them from Egypt, he has done perfectly and permanently for all people through his son Jesus, the son of David. Jeremiah talked about the the true and better Moses, the true and better Passover lamb, the new exodus. And with this new act of salvation, with this new exodus, comes a new ritual to remember it. I don't know if when we were looking at these first three rituals, you know, in Exodus, if and, and the permanence of them. You know, all generations are supposed to watch us. If you thought for a minute, well, if all generations are supposed to do that, why don't we do that? Why, why, why don't we celebrate Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or consecrate our firstborn? It's not because these rituals just disappeared into thin air or simply no longer matter. It's because they have been fulfilled through Christ our Passover lamb. The firstborn of all creation, the firstborn among many brothers who paid our ransom once for all on the cross. And when Jesus was preparing to go to that cross, he did so during the week of the Passover. Now, that was not a coincidence in God's calendar. That was a very uh, specific theological statement of what God is accomplishing for his people, that Jesus died as the true Passover lamb. And as he prepared to do that, he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And and in doing that, he transforms that meal, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, into a new meal, a new meal that will point us not back to the first exodus, but now to the new and better exodus in his body. Communion, the Lord's table. Sometimes we call it the Eucharist. What we celebrated this morning is the fruit of Christ's saving work and the 
mechanism he's given to his church to continually remember that work, just as Israel was to continually remember God's saving work in the Exodus. Jesus took the Passover out of the shadow and into the light of his fulfillment and changed it forever. And so the bread that we eat is no longer the the bread of ancient Israel's affliction. It's the bread of Christ's affliction. His body broken for us. The cup is now a sign of his blood poured out for our sins, just as the, the blood of the Passover lamb covered the door of the household. So Christ's blood covers us, purifies us, for, brings forgiveness and redemption. And, and we are to remember this, to never forget it. And, and so we have this meal and, and the Lord's Supper in the same way as the Passover of old reenacts God's saving work. It takes us back to that day on the cross and walks us back through that story. That story. We see and taste and smell the story of the gospel. It is a sacrifice that Christ made for once and for all. You know, we, we don't eat the Passover over and over again because we need to be saved over and over again. It's not, uh, it's not because there was something lacking in Christ's work on the cross and then we have to keep doing this. Just as you know, Israel didn't need to be saved again and again from Egypt, when they celebrated the Passover, it was pointing them back to that once-for-all salvation. So when we share communion together, it points us once-for-all back to Christ's finished work on the cross. It reenacts the story just like the Passover of old. And just like the Passover of old, communion is now a mark of God's redeemed people. It is a meal to be shared by those who belong to God's family in Christ. It's a family meal for all who've placed their faith in Jesus. It's not like the old Passover where it was you know, a largely ethnically defined community. God had saved the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and marked them with circumcision. Communion, we don't draw lines based on skin color or ethnicity or, or uh, monetary uh, measures or anything like that. The line that Christ draws is faith in him. All who belong to Jesus are part of that family. As, as Paul says in Colossians, in, there's neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but Christ is all and is in all. That's what brings us together. And so the Lord's table, it's a, it's a fellowship of the entire body of Christ. We're one local expression of that, but we share together all who belong to Jesus. It's a mark of God's redeemed people. Again, like Passover, it's also an invitation to consecrate ourselves to God. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's table, it's an opportunity to stop and reflect. Is there unrepentant sin in my life that I need to deal with? Um, it's a reminder that I've been set apart from God, and so therefore I can't tolerate and, and, and harbor these sins in my life. I need to repent of them and rejoice in the gospel that saves me. So it consecrates us to God. And like Passover, uh, it's a witness to our children, as we talked about a minute ago. 
chance to pass on the faith. And finally, it's a celebration. It's a party. Now, notice that when we celebrated the Lord's table earlier, we didn't like roll in the catering trays and, and, and you know, set up the tables. The church should party together more often, by the way. Like, I haven't talked to anybody else about this. I would love if we had a meal every month together as a church, just because that's what Christians do. Deacons, I apologize in advance for throwing that out there without consulting you. But wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be good to share the table together? But when we do it in worship, we often do it, instead of a a big meal, we do it with a sign. And one of the reasons for that is that the early church found uh, that when they were doing the big meal for the Lord's table, people kind of got caught up focused on the food instead of on Christ. Uh, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11. He had some people gorging themselves and some people going home hungry. And instead of focusing on the sign. And so when we celebrate the Lord's table, we do so with a sign. A beautiful, glorious sign that takes us back to the cross and to the saving, finished work of Christ. And so we celebrate. We eat not because we're hungry, but to remember. And of course, there's a risk with every ritual, with every regular observance, to just let it become rote, just go through the motions without really meaning anything. Every regular thing that we do has that possibility. Going to work, uh, you know, anything like that can become rote. And, and the only antidote I know for that is to think carefully each time about what we're actually doing. Listen to the story. Taste the story. Be there in the moment, in the feast, in remembrance and celebration. Don't just do this. Do this in remembrance of Christ. Because it's the memory of the cross facilitated through our regular communion with the Lord and with each other at his table. It's the memory of the cross that reminds us who God is, our creator, king, and savior, who we are, his redeemed children, invited into his family, saved in order to serve his kingdom. Why we serve not in order to be accepted by God, but with gratitude for the acceptance we have in Christ. And it reminds us of what we look forward to, the promise that Christ will come again to make all things new. And in that day, we will celebrate with food in the new creation, the wedding supper of the Lamb. going to be a party. And every time we share this table, we anticipate that party in hope and faith. Serving God as our king requires remembering that he is our savior. And so may we never forget. May we never forget. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, we confess this morning that we often forget. We often forget who you are and what you've done. We often forget what we've been saved from, what we've been saved for. 
And so, Lord, forgive us for making light of your cross. Help us to remember. Help us in each moment to remember that we are a redeemed people bought with a price. That you loved us not because we cleaned up our lives and made ourselves presentable, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, make us mindful of your love and your grace every day of the moment that we might serve you as king, remembering that you are our Savior. We ask it in Jesus' powerful, perfect, all-sufficient name. Amen.